KWVA. KWVA. There are nearly 20 million refugees worldwide fleeing terror, war, violence, and political and religious persecution. Refugees admitted to permanently resettle in the U.S. have been passed through multiple levels of rigorous screening and security clearance. They want what we all want, peace, security, and freedom from fear. Refugees are survivors, families, and no different from us. It's time we welcome refugee families with open arms. Learn more at EmbraceRefugees.org. Now live at 6 o'clock, KWVA Sports is broadcasting from the campus of the University of Oregon. That's the show. It's Quack Mac. I like talking, talking sports. Quack Mac! What? Quack Mac. Every Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m., the KWVA staff dissects all things Oregon athletics. <laughs> I'm, I'm experiencing life right now. I'm not sure how much more can be said. Now I'm on the show, and I don't know how long I'm going to be here. It's time for your nightly dose of <laughs> Quack Smack. Now let's head into the KWVA Sports Studios for the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is another Monday edition of Quack Smack. Levi Burkfold, Gavin Carpenter, Griffin Bowes in here tonight. Griffin, we were talking about a pregame. Uh, we had like four or five weeks in a row together, and then we've been apart for like three or four weeks. So good, good to be back on with you, with you, Griffin. And then uh, Gavin as well. I think we've had, what, three weeks in a row? Yeah, three weeks. We're locking it down. We're, we're just locking it down. I will start off with the obligatory, how was your Thanksgiving? Gavin, I know you flew all the way out to D.C., so we give them like an A-plus Thanksgiving, like a B-plus. What are we thinking? Yeah, 100% A-plus. It's always great. It's the first time I've been back home since mm. I've been out here for college. Travel was a little wacky. That's what you get when you're flying in on Tuesday before Thanksgiving. But That's very fair. Frankly, for, for everything, for as much as I was concerned about the travel, everything was fantastic. I couldn't have asked for a better Thanksgiving. And Griffin, I know you went up to back home to Thanksgiving as well. I, what are we grading on Thanksgiving? Power rankings. Oh, power rankings for Thanksgiving. Mm. I don't know. Let's go B+. Plus. It, it was very good. The food was good, but I don't know. It wasn't like the best we've had. We didn't really we didn't really go anywhere outside of that's, the that's area. Fair. So, that's yeah, no, not not a bad score, but yeah, could have been better, but still definitely above average, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Unlike unlike the Oregon Ducks, ours, our, my thing was just above average. So let's talk about those Oregon Ducks, though, who are dominant. I, w- I want to jump right in. Usually we spend like 10 minutes doing small talk about nothing. I want to jump right into football. Um, and we will do a football-heavy show today. Uh, normally, we do football, then we do a soccer segment or a basketball segment in the middle, and then some Pac-12 stuff at the end. Um, it's just that time of year. I think that we're all focused on football. We're going to talk Oregon, Oregon State for the first segment of the show. Then we'll dive into the preview of the revenge match of all revenge matches, Oregon v. Washington in the Pac-12 championship game, and we will round up the show with a little men's basketball. they got a really big game coming up on Saturday. But I do want to start off with Oregon versus Oregon State, a rivalry game for the ages. It was the final of its kind. We just don't know when these two teams are going to play each other again. They have not scheduled each other. They're still working on it. Um, but frankly, the product in the field was kind of a dud. We, we were hoping for some sort of epic revenge game. Um, Oregon State having bounced the Ducks out of the Pac-12 championship game last year. Nothing of the sort. Ducks uh, went into halftime 21-7. to Beavers never scored again. It was 31-7 to final. Um, I think the drive charts are always really telling in these games. Uh, the Ducks, to start off the first half, went touchdown, touchdown, missed field goal, touchdown. The Beavers in the whole game went turnover on downs, punt, touchdown, turnover on downs, punt, interception, turnover on downs, turnover on downs. So 
Uh, certainly a tough day for the Beavers. Um, I think my I, this is something that we do almost every week, which is what's the headline of the game. And I, I for me, the headline kind of going away was just Oregon's that good. Uh, Gavin, I do kind of want to start off with you. What was your viewpoint? You're only, what, 3,000 miles away when you watch the game. What was your kind of viewpoint, your takeaway from a really dominant victory over, I might add, a, a really solid Oregon State team? I mean, we had talked about um, last week one of the keys, if Oregon State was going to pull off this upset, uh, was going to pull off this upset, was to control the pace, play slow, play a lot in the trenches, and win the trenches. And that's exactly what Oregon did in, the, in that first drive. Took an eight, nine minute drive, went right down the field, punched them in the mouth, scored a touchdown, ran the ball a lot. And that to me was okay. They're going to play like Oregon State, and they're going to sh- they're going to beat Oregon State at their own game. They kind of play they very long drives in that first half, only like three four drives each. Oregon comes out on that fourth drive, about a minute left, and immediately speeds up the pace and effectively shows if you want that headline from that game, Oregon can beat you going fast. Oregon can beat you going slow. Oregon can beat you however they want. Yeah, I think the, the versatility of this Ducks team is really, really out there. We'll talk about the rushing attack here in a minute. But, Griffin, full, I will kick it to you. What was your kind of takeaway? I know you're you're, you're pretty high in this Ducks team. I think we all are. What was your kind of immediate takeaway from watching? What I mean, to say it wasn't close is a little disrespectful, but it wasn't close. I don't think this game was ever in doubt. I mean, no, it really wasn't close. And let's talk about the rushing defense for a second. I heard a stat where Oregon State's running back was – averaging over six yards per carry this season until this game, of course, where his his most successful carry was only six yards. So most successful didn't even reach the average. I think that just really shows how how good Oregon's rush defense and really defense in general is compared to the rest of the Pac-12 and the rest of the teams that Oregon State played, which some of, some of which are very good teams. They played Washington, who I think is a decent team, not as good as Oregon. We'll get there. But, you know... <laughs> It's never too early to start the Husky slander. It's it's never too early. (laughs) But, you know, Washington is a a decent opponent. Oregon State played some other decent opponents like Utah. I I know they're not ranked right now in the playoff rankings, but they're still a good team, good, you know, kind of well-rounded team. Oregon State's played some good teams, and they've been able to run the ball, but not this time against Oregon. And they didn't really have much success throwing the ball either. It was really more the defense that's been on display for the Ducks the last couple of weeks rather than the offense, even though the offense has still played good. Yeah, this Oregon State team – their strength was rushing, and their strength was being able to really control the line of scrimmage. To your point, uh, they held <clears throat> running back Damian Martinez to a season-low 38 yards on 13 carries. I mean, I'm really high on Martinez. He's a great player. He's a really fun guy to watch. He's just a power back, like an old-school power back, and just punch teams. Um, and he just never got going. I mean, it was just, it was just he, he never could find a rhythm, um, and I think that was the most impressive thing uh, I saw. And to your point, the defense absolutely showed out. Um, I do want to talk about the defense, but let's talk about the rushing attack for Oregon. To your point, Gavin, about the versatility of Oregon, just to really put this in perspective, this is a pretty rush-heavy team. They're one of the best rushing attacks in the nation. They did not have a rusher go for more than 50 yards in the game, which was weird when I thought about it. I was like, oh, my mind somehow they had done better than that. James, uh, Jordan James went 7 for 43 with a touchdown. Bucky went 14 for 41 with a touchdown, a really quiet game by his perspective. Uh, Knicks went 6 for 31 with a touchdown. Those were their leading rushers, um, and it was just it was just weird. Um, and this is, again, going against uh, a rushing defense that wasn't super prolific. Oregon State especially, while they, they've had a lot of success rushing the passer, they haven't had much success stopping the run. Um, I guess you can take it two ways. I'll start with you, Gavin. You can take it as it's worrisome they weren't able to run in a team that doesn't 
statistically have a great rush defense. The way I'm interpreting this, though, is to your point, which is they can beat you in so many different ways. They can have a, a down rush game. I mean, they still have more than 100 yards. They can have a down rush game. Bucky Irving, one of, one of the best backs, I would say, in the nation, uh, can have a really down game by his perspective, uh, 14 for 41 on the ground, and they can still win by 24 points. Uh, how, which way do you lean with that? I almost lean with you. You, used, you said specifically said they could not have run the ball, and they weren't able to run the ball. I'm not even sure that that's true necessarily. I think they just didn't need to. Honestly, I really don't feel like the rushing stats were simply because they were losing in the trenches or they weren't able to get momentum going. If anything, the only reason why those numbers weren't higher were because the pass was working. Honestly, I feel like, realistically, that rushing attack was not as good as it has been statistically, but not necessarily not good as it has been on the field from an eye test perspective. Because we just you just mentioned you thought the stats would have been higher than they actually were. So, to me, that is less that shows me less of a oh they weren't able to run the ball oh I should be concerned about this and more of a they didn't really need to run the ball that often and when they did they did it successfully but they didn't need to do it that often. Bo Nix was balling out of his mind that entire game on the passing attack. We t- 85 90 yards total from a rushing perspective. Is that concerning to me? No, not because they were getting stopped on an average of like three, four yards of carry, and they were trying to run the ball and they weren't. But I really like, I remember them running the ball successfully, but I don't remember them running the ball often. So when I'm looking at this, I'm going, this isn't a, a situation of the rushing attack not being effective so much as it is the rushing attack not being necessary. That was a season, a tied for a season low in team rush yards for Oregon. The last time they had 113 on the nose versus Oregon State, last time they did so, they did that versus Texas Tech. And that was a very, very different game where the Ducks were really clawing to get back into that one and they needed to pass it a lot. So I guess, Griffin, I'll, I'll open the floor to you as well. Do you think it's a concerning sign the Ducks' offense didn't go well? I mean, the Ducks' rushing attack didn't perform well. I mean, to be clear, we're, we're nitpicking. They, they won by 24. But just to, just to give us something to talk about, do you think that's any concern? Uh, no, I don't really think it is at all. This felt like a game where one of Oregon State's goals was to sell out against the run because they thought Oregon was going to run it a lot. And to be honest, Oregon threw it a lot more than I thought they would. I thought Oregon would try to shove it down their throat and try to beat a more physical team. The team that Oregon State surprisingly was last year. And while Oregon was in a way the more physical team, they were also the much more explosive team as Bo Nix really went off in this game once again. I, I don't know what the Heisman odds right now. I don't know if we're going to talk about this later, but Bo Nix certainly under heavy consideration for the Heisman. And Oregon's receivers, unlike maybe in a year like 2019, 2018 with Justin Herbert as the quarterback, all the drops from these receivers, this year not a liability at all. I mean, yeah. these yeah. receivers can go with anyone. And as the rushing attack is concerned, Washington is not a great rush defense. I know we have great rush defenses like Georgia and Michigan potentially making the playoffs, but really in the, in the near future, if or for in terms of making the playoff, rushing is not really a concern, and Oregon can beat you with these receivers. Yeah, let's talk about those receivers. I mean, this is well. Let's talk about Knicks and the receivers. So Knicks' stat line usually amazing, continues to be amazing. Thirty-three for forty. 367 on in the air, two touchdowns. He did chip in those uh, 31 rush yards as well with a, a, a touch on the ground. So three total touchdowns, but 33 for 40. As a note, that did break the single-season completion record for the NCAA. Um, he needed to keep around that 77, 78 range and said he completed uh, right in the low 80s. So he did break the record previously set by Mac Jones, which – Another uh, another record for him, but the receivers uh, Franklin goes nine for 128 with uh, with a touchdown. 
Tez Johnson, who's been in an absolute tear over the last few games, goes 11 for 137. So now the Ducks on the year, they have Franklin as a 1,000-plus-yard receiver, and uh, Tez Johnson's knocking on that door. He's real close. And then as far as their uh, rushers go, they do have Bucky with 1,000 yards on the ground as well. Um, these skill position guys are on another level right now, and I, I think we talk a lot about – I think football a lot of times comes down to who's playing the best at the end. And we'll, we'll get to Washington next segment. I promise we'll get to Washington. But just to talk about the regular season, this team is playing their best ball at the end. And I think that's really evident in these skill position players. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, Gavin. I would put this skill position group against anyone's in the nation right now. I would put it against, historically, anyone. I think this is the best group of Oregon skill position players we've seen in a long time. I think that you can rank this team against any Oregon team that has ever existed. I think that you can compare this team to any team in the country right now from a skill position perspective. I feel like when you look at every other team in the country, I feel like you can always go, oh, well, there's this star player here, but eh, the kind the depth kind of falls off. When Treshawn Holden <laughs> is your fourth string wide receiver, is your f- fourth down on the depth chart, that's when you go, oh, this team is one of the best skill positions, like balanced both from a running and from a passing attack, but also balanced from, like, all the way down the depth chart. You've got incredible talent all the way down. And realistically, to me, this is the most... This is the deepest skill position group, especially the wide receivers. This is the deepest wide receiver room in the country, 100%. The the other thing is they aid their running their wide receiver room with a really prolific running back passing attack uh, versus Oregon State. Bucky Irving, quiet game on the ground, went five for 17 yards in the touchdown through the air. Uh, Griffin, I mean, it's it almost simplistic to say, hey, this is an A-plus skill position group, but just speak to that. I mean, how, how impressive is this skill position group? If you take Knicks out of it, who is, again, the Heisman favorite right now. We'll talk about that in a second. This skill position group is that good, and this is one of the best, to Gavin's point, that we've seen at the University of Oregon in a long time. And the, the reason why this skill position group is not receiving more national attention is because they don't have, like, a superstar player. They, they don't have, like, let's see, a Derrick Henry or Christian McCaffrey from years Marvin back. Harrison, like Marvin Harrison. Marvin yeah. Harrison, yes. Maserati Marv is my fave, <laughs> Gus Johnson likes to say. I, someone, I had someone on Twitter try to get the, the Ferrari Franklin going, and I, it just doesn't hit the same for me. It, it just doesn't doesn't work for me. But sorry, guys. <laughs> it just, uh, it does not roll off the tongue the way that <laughs> Maserati Franklin. Marv does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Oregon is a consistency team and a consistency program. They're not super flashy on one side of the ball like Washington. They don't have one elite player, you know, like a Maserati Marv. It's just good all around. There's outside of maybe Bo Nix and then a couple players here or there, you got Troy Franklin, you got some guys on the defense. There's no like superstar amazing player. It's just a lot of good. And Honestly, that's enough to win this year. This year with the the high the top team, probably Georgia, the best team in the country, isn't as good as the best team in past years. I mean, this is why Oregon has gone through with an 11-1 and regular season record for the first time since 2014 because they're just really good. And that was kind of similar to the, those old Duck teams. It, they were more one-dimensional. They were more winning on the offense and the defense. But outside of maybe Marcus Mariota or D'Anthony Thomas, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, NFL player here, NFL player there, NFL player there with like an Alabama or a Georgia or an Ohio State, but it's just a lot of good, and that wins right now. 
Uh, it absolutely does win, and Oregon's been winning big. Um, we're going to talk about the bigger national picture in Washington in the next segment. I want to wrap up this segment by talking about the defense. Because while we were preparing for this, I was kind of going through the defensive stats for Oregon, just kind of reminding myself. And when I went through the, the Oregon defensive stats for for Oregon State, that game specifically, no one player jumped off the screen. And at first, I was kind of like, well, that, that feels weird. Someone's got to jump out here statistically. And there just isn't one player. I mean, Dante Manning had the interception, uh, the, the only turnover of the game, uh, only one sack by Mateo. There's another tackle for loss uh, by Kyrie Jackson. No player had more than six tackles. And it's almost the same conversation as the rushing attack conversation where you could interpret that as saying, oh, there's no one defender who jumps off the, the stat sheet. The way I interpret that and the way I view this team is that it's a really, really balanced defense. They know how to stifle teams. This Oregon State team, I'm not saying they're a prolific offense or a great offense, but they're a good, competent offense with a good, competent coach. They had a good, competent coach. They had zero traction going. They scored that sole touchdown in the second quarter, and it was just they could not get anything going beyond that. They went two for six and fourth down. Oregon knows how to stiffen when they need to. They, they held this team just three for 11 on third down, just nothing going. And so I think that my takeaway from the defensive stats is like, yeah, they don't have a single player. You look at Ohio State, they have you know, a, a star player. There's no one player on this defense that will stop a game. But as a whole, they are a crippling defense to go against. No, 100%. This team, this defensive unit as a whole is one of the strongest defensive units in the country. They've The pass rush, when you're looking at the pass rush, it's not, oh, it's Kayvon Thibodeau and Noah Sewell running the pass rush. It's Bassa, it's Birch. It's Dorless, everybody coming I mean, in. Yeah. yeah, Brandon Dorless played out of his mind. And realistically, when you look at that and you go, oh, well, the only sack in the game was Mateo throwing a lineman into his older brother. <laughs> it was not even like a true tackle sack. And But the pressure that they were putting as a unit on DJU was one of the reasons why he was unable to get anything going through the air. The absolute pressure that they were throwing in any time Martinez was going to run the ball is the reason why they weren't able to get anything done on the ground. This is not a team that's going to say, oh, well, our star right end is going to be able to rush the passer and get like five sacks, six sacks, seven sacks, eight sacks, ten sacks, twelve sacks a season. This is a team that's going to go, no matter, we're going to come from every angle, from every side. We are solid across the entire length of the field, all the way down to the end zone, from wherever you're on the line of scrimmage. We are going to be able to stop whatever you're going to throw at us from wherever, and no matter where you look, there will not be a hole. Yeah, I'm starting to notice the career development for some of these players, especially Dante Manning, who had the interception. I've been highly critical of him for most of his time at Oregon. I've thought that he, can, he, he commits a lot of pass interferences and in critical situations. He doesn't he, really... He had that uh, personal foul for his Oregon State as well, threw it down a def- an offensive player. To your point, yeah. Uh, was that this year or last year? Yeah, this year. Yeah, he, Oh, it, this he, year. Kind of a blow-up, but still. It, yeah. It, yeah, he doesn't really turn around to look for the ball. He's, he's not very great in coverage on deep balls. But this time, when I saw him get that interception, turning around in the left corner of the end zone and picking off the ball, just a beautiful form interception exactly what you want to see from a defensive back at Oregon and honestly that that just really impressed me someone who I'd seen as a liability on this defense for really three years now someone who came up with a lot of a lot of hype I called him a bust I said he wasn't living up to his star rating you <laughs> You're know a certified hater you know not <laughs> you know I try to be as critical as possible <laughs> you know that was a great interception that's yeah, all I want to say great uh, can you please keep that up for me yeah, it was a great interception. Oregon, 
to your point about the defense being the sum, bigger than the sum of the parts, however you say that saying, they're right now seventh in the nation in scoring defense. Side note, top four, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, Iowa. Maybe offenses in the Big Ten are just not terrible. Maybe that's why the top four defenses in the country are from the Big Ten. Maybe the offenses there just aren't good. Just, just a thought. Just want to throw that out there. The only other team besides Oregon who's in the top ten of both scoring offense and scoring defense is Georgia. Oregon has the number two scoring offense and the number seven scoring defense. Georgia, eighth in scoring offense and sixth in scoring defense. This is such a balanced squad and such a balanced team. I, I just I cannot stop being impressed with this squad. Again, they win versus Oregon State 31-7. to when we come back, we're going to talk more Oregon football because it is Pac-12 Championship Week. It's Husky Hate Week, Part 2, here on KWVA 88.1 FM. KWVA. 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 The Skate Park Project, formerly the Tony Hawk Foundation, is a skateboarding organization that helps communities build public skate parks for youth in underserved communities. To date, nearly 600 recipients of the Skate Park Project grants have opened their skate parks. These parks receive more than 6 million annual visits by youth who benefit from the active lifestyle and camaraderie the facilities promote. Learn more about the Skate Park Project by visiting www.skatepark.org. UNICEF works across 190 countries and territories to reach the children and young people who are most at risk and most in need. As conflict escalates in Ukraine, UNICEF is on the ground providing safe water, emergency supplies, and social services to children and their families. Learn more at unicef.org forward slash Ukraine forward slash EN. For over 50 years, Help Heal Veterans has utilized recycled materials to create, manufacture, and distribute art therapy kits that help vets deal with pain management, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and many other challenges. Our kits help veterans find sustainable wellness in their lives. We are proud to help those who served our country. Our mission is to help our veterans. To learn more, go to HealVets.org. That's HealVets.org. Sponsored by Help Heal Veterans. This is Travis Tyke, former assistant sports director at KWVA. Cheers! You're listening to Quack Smack. One of our longer intros, but I love that guitar riff, so I, so I had to go with it. So we just spent a solid 20 minutes talking uh, Oregon versus Oregon State. Um, it's time to put that in the rearview mirror. And again, normally we talk about another sport in this segment, but again, it's that time of year. Last week we just deep-dived Oregon-Oregon State. This week I want to deep-dive Oregon versus Washington. So again, no one here needs a reminder. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Oregon played Washington all the way back in week five, I think. It was week six, week six. Week seven. Oh, week seven, excuse me. Uh, at UW, so in Seattle, they lose 33-36 to off a missed Camden Lewis field goal with a chance to send that game to overtime in the waning seconds. At the time, Washington was number seven. Uh, Oregon was, what, top ten at the time. Uh, and then since then... Oregon has been on an absolute tear, dominating opponents. We do not need to rehash that. We've been watching all year. On the flip side, we talk a lot about playing your best ball at the end of the year. By all accounts, Washington peaked on October 14th 
on that Saturday in Seattle because since then they have looked questionable to say the least. So among that stretch for, for Washington, they beat Arizona State 15-7 to without scoring an offensive touchdown. They beat Stanford 42-13 to in a game that's way closer than that score appears because if you remember, Stanford had the ball driving uh, with a chance to take the lead and then threw like a walk-off pick six. They beat SC 52-14, Utah 35-28, Oregon State 22-20. Those two points courtesy of a safety on a high snap. And then last week in rivalry week at home, they need a walk-off field goal after a dramatic 4-1 conversion in the waning seconds of that game to beat rival Washington State at home 24-21. I say all that in the context of Oregon versus Washington are playing again, right? Friday, Pac-12 championship game in Las Vegas, neutral site. Oregon opened up as a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. Nine-and-a-half points. Washington is an undefeated team. They beat Oregon. And at least in my memory, I can never remember a team being a almost 10-point underdog to a team they have beaten and they are undefeated. That is crazy. However, I agree. I think Washington has looked like a shell of themselves since that Washington game. There are some weird rumors that Penix might be hurt. He's an alleged rib injury. Maybe he has the flu. That's what Washington's saying right now. This is a little ill. There's lots of weird stuff going on with this Washington team. That being said, they are insanely talented. I would push back on your comment earlier with the or- the Oregon uh, receiving room being the best in the country. The the Washington receiving room is insane. Roma Dunze is insane. Jalen Polk. They have some great receivers in that squad. So, Griffin, you are the station's resident Washington hater, and I, and I love it. Let's talk about Washington. I'll start off with the simplest question. How much do you agree with Oregon being a 9.5-point favorite over an undefeated Washington? I don't think it's enough. Wow. Honestly. Tell me and about you it. You call me a Washington hater, but I said the exact same things about Washington right now. I said the same things about TCU last year. That's fair. That's it, you fair, know, fair. in college football, and the same things about 2015 Iowa. It is not that hard in college football to go undefeated in the regular season. Mm. It is not that hard to win close games against in, inferior teams if you're going off of recruiting rankings. If you get an easy schedule and you get a couple of good lucky plays and you're able to squeak out wins, I mean, realistically, if you just look at the talent that Washington has, sure, they're not the recruiting rankings are not amazing, but they should be able to beat Arizona State by more than eight. I don't care how bad the hangover is. They should be able to to beat Washington State at home by more than three, regardless of rivalry week. They should have been able to beat uh, Arizona probably by more than seven. They should have been able to beat, what are some other games, Stanford by more than nine. They, they actually almost lost to Stanford. And back to the Arizona State game, they got, a, they got a lucky a call when they picked up the pass interference penalty. So Washington right now, it's just, I don't want to say it's all luck. They do deserve this 12-0 record, but what they've done really isn't that difficult. If you take Ohio State, let's say, or Penn State, or Missouri, and give them Washington's schedule, very good chance that they're 12-0 right now. Get a couple of lucky breaks versus Oregon and then skate by the rest of your schedule. What they're doing is not that impressive. And Oregon right now, Oregon may be number six in the committee, but they're number three in the ESPN FPI. And they've been around number three for quite a while. I don't know where they are in the the Josh Pate poll, the twenty four seven sports analyst Josh Pate, his computer model. Yeah, he's the Oregon has been in the top five for at least a month now in that poll. I'm pretty sure they're still going to be in the top five, considering that they covered against Oregon State 
and that is a power ranking that goes largely based off of who would be favored on a neutral field. If it was up to me, I, I would put Oregon as about a 13 to 14 point favorite over Washington right now. Gavin, Gavin, take it away because Washington, in their first nine games, they averaged 41 points. In the last three, they've averaged 27. We talked about earlier, if I had to list off their margin of victories, like see if you can see a trend here. Margin of victories for Washington this year, 37, 33, 34, 27. Nice. 7-3, 8-9, 10-7-2-3. They have not been a team by more than 10 since week four. Those four teams that they beat by ten by more than 10, uh, not exactly not exactly powerhouses. Boise State, Tulsa, Michigan State, Cal. The only 10-point margin over the last eight games is Southern Cal. I mean, where are you with this Washington team right now? It's hard, and this is one of those situations where sometimes you'll see the eye test conflict with the numbers that you're seeing, is when you look at Michael Penix, especially before he looked injured, you look at him and you go, okay, this guy's balling out. This team should be winning games by more than they're winning. The defense has looked kind of suspect in a lot of games, but it's really these last few games that make me question where this team is offensively because the defense, I don't really feel like the defense is doing anything. I'm not really seeing anything for the defense that I would be confused about. Yeah. Maybe that, that thir- allowing 33 points to Stanford is a little bit, yeah, but that's a bad night. Every team has them. 42 points against USC. That seems reasonable considering it's Caleb Williams. Throw out 28 points to Utah, 20 points to Oregon State, 21 points to Washington State. All of these numbers sound within the realm of, oh yeah, that sounds accurate. If you were to predict a final score, but it's the offensive production that's a little bit questionable, especially in these last few games. 22 points against Oregon State, 24 points against Washington State, 35 points against Utah. That's where I start to question, is he injured? Is the offense just not clicking? Is he not finding his receivers? Is the run game, are they not able to get the run and the pass game going at the same time? Because they can. When the run game is actually going for Washington, they are one of the strongest teams in the country when they don't have to throw the ball every play. And giving that, giving Penix that amount of time in the backfield to be able to throw because you don't not quite sure if they're going to run and they've been running it effectively. That's where the recipe for Washington really gets going and that's where they really start to play well. So, to me the question really here is can they is it a injury question or is the form finding that form again? And I feel like it's more about finding that form again. I do realize that Penix probably does have some rib bruising or something around that. Probably started by Oregon in that game he was wincing off by the time he, that game ended in Seattle against the Ducks and then probably got exacerbated later in the season. But to me, the real question is, can they find that rushing attack? Can they find that passing attack? And can they do it both at the same time? I feel like this team is not, this is still the same team. We're talking, we talk about Florida State. Florida State's missing a quarterback. They're not the same team that they have been. This is still the same team. There's nothing different about it. I feel like there's still, they can still find that energy and that ability on offense to play. 52 points against Southern Cal. Yes, their defense isn't great. They can 35 points against Utah is still a decent score. I feel like their offense still can produce at high levels, and I feel like they just need to find that spark and they can get back to that form. This is going to be a terrible example because USC is actually terrible at football, but this is how I felt when USC was first starting that skid where it was like, yes, the results in the field aren't good, that this team is so talented they could beat anyone in the nation. And we had this conversation on this very show where I said, I think USC can beat anyone in the nation and they can lose to anyone in the nation. I don't think Washington can lose to anyone. Like they, their floor is higher than USC, to be very clear. But I have the same feeling with them where it's like, I, I know that this team is so incredibly talented that there is a world where they can beat anyone. 
in the country when they play their A-plus game. The problem is we haven't seen their A-plus game in a very long time. And that's the weird part for me is like, I know it's there when they reach like not seven, eight, nine, tenth gear, whatever you want to call it. Their wide receivers are so good. Roma Dunze is so good, but I, we, I just don't think we've seen an A plus game from them since Oregon Griffin. Honestly, that Oregon game was not even an A plus game. Bo Nix actually outgained Michael Penix, Oregon outgained Washington by over a hundred yards. And Michael Penix had an interception in that game. Receiver kind of turned away from the pass and, the way Washington is built, they're just one of those teams with a really high ceiling, similar to maybe 2020 Florida, who scored 38 against Georgia just in the first half alone. Washington <laughs> could do pull. that. Yeah, Washington could do it. They are one of those teams, like Ohio State last year. This is a football team where with a really, really high ceiling and not that low of a floor, but the thing is they play closer to their floor a lot more than they play close to their ceiling. A lot of people just assume high ceiling, high floor – you know, they're going to be a great team. But Washington plays at that four all the time. They're always playing these one-possession games. And even against Oregon, they just did not play great. They just kind of got lucky with the fourth-down decisions. And Oregon, real, I think Dan Lanning will probably play this game a lot different knowing that he's the he has the better team. And can he can afford to punt on fourth and three if you're, the, you're the better yeah. team and you just let the sample size play out. It's 60 minutes of football. You're a nine-point favorite. You're, you're the better team. I, I think... A few more punts in this game would definitely help the Ducks in those critical fourth down scenarios, maybe not be as aggressive. But as it pertains to Washington, yes, they could. there is a scenario where Michael Penix throws for 450 yards and they beat Oregon and then they go on to win a national championship. There is a scenario, but if you just play the numbers, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I, you're right. The ceiling is so high. And I think that's part of the offensive talent where like when a team is that offensively good, maybe more so than elite defenses, but when a team is that offensively good, you just know that there's a world where they outscore you. You know what I mean? Even when you're going against an Iowa or a Penn State, a team with a bad offense and a good defense, like I just don't have much faith in those teams winning out against great teams. And we're seeing that Iowa, we're seeing Penn State. But with a team with an offense that good, I think you just have – there's this world, like you to your point, Griffin – where they just outscore you. Um, we can talk about the larger national picture, and I, I do want to touch on Florida State a little bit. But with Washington versus Oregon on Friday, let's talk about some X factors. And so what I mean by that is, like, what is a player that you think will decide the game? And we can talk Oregon, Washington. We can talk one player each team, however you guys want to start this. But I'll, I'll start off by saying Roma Dunze. And the, the reason I say that is he is such a elite offensive weapon that – I think that if Wa- if Oregon can contain him, I think they win this game going away. If Washington wins this game, it's going to be like one of those three touchdown, 200-yard performances from Adunze. W- which one of your X-Factor players, Gavin? I'd have to say Brandon Dorless, honestly. I feel like the defensive line, We look if we look at what happened last game and what was successful last game, the pass rush, the pass rush was successful last game. Landing is going to look at this. Coach Landing is going to look at this, and he's going to go, what can we do? We, we look at what we did well, exacerbate that, put that to the extreme, and absolutely hammer them. And I feel like putting that pass rush in Washington's face and in Penix's face, he does not do well under pressure. He does not do well under high pressure. He did not throw well under high pressure in that game. When I look at this and I see, okay, when they were able to get to him, especially later in that game, he did not do well at all. 
His completion percentage went under that pressure, was probably below 50% for that game, probably closer to 40%. And when I look at that and I go, okay, who's going to make the difference here? Best star of the offensive line, Brandon Dorless. He's going to step up. He's going to get a couple of sacks. He's going to be in Penix's face all night. That's going to make the difference. What about you, Griffin? What's a player that jumps out to you? Honestly, I'm of the belief that Jane Daniels is the most explosive player in the country, but I'm also of the belief that this game is going to determine the Heisman. Mm. It's either going to be Bo Nix or Michael Penix. As unfair as that may be, there's a scenario where Michael Penix outgains Bo Nix, but because he has the worst team, Bo Nix wins the Heisman. There's also a scenario where it goes the other way around, a little bit like how it did in the last game. Bo Nix outgained Michael Penix, and Washington still won the game. I think the the team that wins this game will have the Heisman winning quarterback. Unless there is a scenario where both quarterbacks just play terrible, but I don't really see that happening. I, I think the battle between Bo Nix and Michael Penix, even though they never actually play against each other, they're going to be on opposite opposite ends. I think that's going to really determine this game. And because Oregon is such a better team than Washington, I do think Bo Nix has more room for error than Michael Penix does. I think the Oregon defense is definitely better than the Washington defense. But if you're, if you're going to ask be about pure X factor. It's definitely going to be the quarterback here. Bo Nix is going to have to play a really bad game, I think, for Oregon to lose here and for him to not win the Heisman. He's in a scenario right now where he's pretty much, in my opinion, with LSU not playing in the SEC championship or anything, Bo Nix is probably going to win the Heisman. I'm, I'm not going to lock it in quite yet, but I would be very surprised if, if Oregon wins, he walks away from New York without that trophy. As of this morning... Uh, depending on who you ask, Bo Nix is anywhere from like a minus 120 to a minus 160 uh, favorite with Penix in a pretty distant third at this point. Um, to your point about the Heisman, just briefly, I think if Nix plays well, he wins it. I think if he throws up an absolute stinker, Jane Daniels probably wins it. I think Penix is at this point just purely eliminated unless he goes absolutely superhuman and throws for a touchdown or something crazy. Um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of times, Griffin, this game comes down to a quarterback battle. And um, it's a game of quarterbacks, and I think that these are two of the best in the country, and I think we're going to watch that. If we get A plus Michael Penix, it's a different game. But I think if if I think the quarterback that plays better, you know, it, it sometimes it's that simple. To your point, Oregon is the better roster; they have more room for error. Um, we're wrapping up the segment pretty quickly here. However, I want to talk a little bit about Florida State. Uh, two questions: One, we'll get to in a second. We're going to talk about seeding if Florida State makes it. I know Florida State going to play Louisville. Um, Florida State's undefeated. Uh, their star quarterback, Jordan Travis, uh, went down with a pretty gruesome leg injury two weeks ago. Um, and so they're, they're riding out with a backup quarterback. They beat Florida, but it wasn't pretty. And Florida is not a good football team. Um, and so it's really, it just sucks for Florida State fans, to be clear. Like, it sucks if you're a Florida State fan to have come this far and just be like, oh, our quarterback's over, so it's done. Because I don't think anyone in their right mind thinks that Florida State has a chance to win a playoff game. I think that they would get crushed by every other playoff team, and it's not even close, uh, which just sucks because it's, it's nothing they did wrong. It's just their quarterback got injured. My question to you guys is, should the committee take into account the quarterback injury with regards to getting in the playoff? Because we'll talk about seeding here in a second. But if Florida State's undefeated, and I guess the scenario would be that it would be if Georgia loses, that would be a one-loss SEC runner-up Georgia, or if Texas wins, you know, a one-loss Texas, or even if, like, Washington loses and it's a one-loss Pac-12 runner-up, those three squads, compared to Oregon, I mean, to compare to Florida State, all three would be heavy favorites, but should the committee take into account the fact that this is not the Florida State team, or is it as simple as, hey, you're undefeated, you're in the playoffs? 
normally, normally, I would say you're undefeated, you're in the playoffs, that's it. But usually, I would say that also generally because I, if you're the committee, you do not ever want to set a precedent of you won every single game you possibly could in a Power 5 conference and still weren't able to get in over a team that lost a game. That's not a precedent I want to set. Luckily for the committee, they don't have to set that precedent because we're into a 12-team playoff next year, and there will be no way possible that there will be 12 teams that will be better than an undefeated Power Five champ or Power Four champion. Excuse me, it's still weird to say yep. Power Four champion at any time, no matter what. I don't care if every if the all of those teams are below 500, they will still get in anyway. So to me. Normally, I would say you don't want to take that into account. They're undefeated. They should get in. Looking at the teams that they have to compete with as well, this is an unusually high-parity year for college football. There are a lot of really, really good teams at the top. When you look at a one-loss Texas, who would probably be the first one out in this situation, if you were to, that'll probably be the determiner. Is if it's probably Florida State, an undefeated Florida State versus the one-loss Texas, we can at that if Florida State wins, we can assume that Texas will also win. That'll be the matchup. To me, when I look at that, Texas is all around. If you can now, granted, the sample size is small for Florida State, Texas is all around the better team. I would think that Texas would beat this Texas team, would beat this Florida State team without Jordan Travis by about 25 to 30 points. To me, you don't want to set that precedent as the committee, but you don't have to worry about that precedent because it's a 12 team playoff next year. So that won't be a problem. To me, Texas is that better team. To me, even a two-loss Alabama or a one-loss Washington is a better team, even if Georgia does win. To me, there is no—this is a team that you know is going to do poorly. You know they're going to do poorly. So to me, I feel that it is better to save the Florida State fans from getting blown out in a playoff <laughs> game. And I would— Let them ride off into the sunset. Yeah, let them ride off into the sunset. It is a shame. I was rooting against Florida State as an Oregon fan because it was, at the time, a better way for Oregon to get into the playoff. I did not want them to get out of the running like that. That was not—absolutely awful injury. I feel so bad for Jordan Travis, especially because that was the end of his college career. Yeah. And especially because he had a chance to lead that team. That team was decent. Like, they were getting a lot of hate because their their strength of schedule wasn't great. That was a good team. So, to me, I think you don't— let them into the playoff at a 12-0 record, but I think that the committee does. I think that that's... Yeah. I, I think they're in. Yeah, I think they're in if they're undefeated. I think they they should maybe look at that and really consider that, especially because they don't have to worry about that precedent, but I do think that they're going to be in regardless. I think that's just committee rule number one, undefeated Power 5 champion in playoff. Done. Yeah, I just think that if you win, you're in because you have to make the games matter. Griffin, real quick, is there any world in which an undefeated Florida State doesn't make the playoff? Uh, yes, there is a world. Honestly, I believe that if Florida State wins, they're in. I if if the if it was up to me, Florida State would be out. No, no matter what. It, this is listen. This is not Sunday sports. This is not the NFL. It everyone plays a different schedule. It, it, that's just how it is. No other playoff contender is going to have gone through Oregon State schedule or not Oregon State. Sorry, Florida State schedule. there's really no other way to say this. I mean, I just do not like the way that people use the phrase undefeated team or one lost team or two lost teams. I'd probably pick Penn State over Florida State head-to-head right now. I just do not think Florida State is even remotely close to a top-four team. Even with Jordan Travis, they were like near number eight or number nine or something in Josh Pate's model. I probably would have left them out even with Jordan Travis. This is just not a caliber team where 
that that I would feel comfortable about them playing a competitive game on January 1st, which is really, if I'm the committee, that is my number one goal. Not necessarily about storylines or drama, but how can we get competitive, high-quality football matchups on January 1st? And I don't think Florida State or Washington deserves that. I don't. Why are we talking about Washington with one loss in the conference championship, but not Ohio State? Ohio State would cream Washington. Ohio State probably cream Texas, too. I, I, I think... <laughs> It, uh, it, I know I've heard some people say today that Ohio State's probably going to fall to seven or eight in the committee. I'd still leave Ohio State in the top four. I think this is an amazing football team, and I think if the game was at the shoe, they would have won that game, and they'd be twelve and zero, and they'd be number two. So it's just a matter of home field advantage. I think if Oregon played Washington and Austin, they would have won. I think Oregon should be ahead of Washington right now. And uh, where would I have Ohio State? Probably three or four. I think they're done in terms of the committee. But I would just like to let everyone know, this is a top four team. They they belong in the playoff, and Texas may belong too if if the right things happen. But definitely definitely not Florida State. Never change, Griffin. Never change. I I, I do think Florida State wins and they're in. Um, regardless, I do want to touch a little bit on the seeding because um, if you if you ima- we'll do this really quickly because we are running out of time. If every favorite wins in the in the Power Five championship games, which would mean undefeated Florida State. Undefeated Georgia, undefeated Michigan, one lost Texas, one lost Oregon. Those five teams. Those all win. One, I want to go real quickly go, who's, not who do you think should, but who do you think will be in and who do you think will be those rankings? Because the rankings matter, especially if Florida State's there. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but that is the game everyone wants. Everyone wants to play Florida State. And there's a world where a one loss Oregon is a higher seed than Florida State in the playoff. Case in point, 2014. The first college football playoff, Oregon was the two seed. They lost to Arizona earlier that year, and they were above the undefeated Florida State Seminoles as a three seed because that was the year that Florida State, if you remember, was just like sneaking by people every game. It was a weak ACC. So there's a world that Georgia stays at one, Michigan stays at two, Oregon jumps to three, Florida State at four, which would mean Georgia gets to beat up on Florida State. Oregon plays Michigan. If all five Power 5 champion favorites win, I think that's what it is. I think it's Georgia 1, Michigan 2, Oregon 3, Florida State 4. I'm not saying that's what I think it should be. That's what I think it will be. Take it away, Gavin. Yeah, for me, the, I 100% agree with that. I think that I if those four teams are the teams that you think, I think that's what it should be. I think that's what it will be. I think that the difference between this and that first year 2014 with the Rose Bowl no matter whether Oregon was two or Florida State was three or Florida State was two and Oregon was three, they were still going to have to play each other in the same game. Yeah. So it really didn't matter as much, which is why I was shocked at the time that they did that. Yeah. Because realistically, they could have just said undefeated team, go ahead. It doesn't really matter. They're going to have to play each other anyway. But it this really year, matters this year. Yeah, it 100% matters this year. And this is where the difference, I think, lands. We know that Florida – let's assume that they are going to put Florida State in if they win because of the undefeated record no matter what. Once they're in – they have no – there's no, like, oh, we have to put them up because – rank them this high in the seeding because of this. They're in the playoffs. They win. They're in. I think rewarding Georgia as the number one team by playing the team that doesn't have its quarterback anymore, regardless of the undefeated record, yeah. the team that does not have their starting quarterback and has not looked particularly great with their backup, I think that is the appropriate way to seed this tournament as a four-team tournament. I also feel like it would be appropriate because this is the last year of the Pac-12 and you would have the Big Ten champion Michigan against the Pac-12 champion Oregon in the Rose Bowl, which I would absolutely love to see, considering who knows, I, that will never happen again because the Rose Bowl 
is going to be messed up because the Pac-12 won't yeah. exist anymore, so there'll be no automatic bid for the Pac-12. To me, that is the appropriate way to seed it. That being said, the argument is, are seedings and rankings the same thing when you come to that point in the season and when you come to that point in the rankings? If the rankings, if you want to rank them and as undefeated team, then they're going to be three, Oregon will be four, Oregon will get Georgia. But every way that you shake this, especially because we know that the College Football Playoff Committee cannot is not always the most objective of groups. They can play to storylines a little bit to see Oregon-Michigan final Rose Bowl game, and that's a good football game. Oregon-Michigan final Rose final Rose Bowl game with the Pac-12. Georgia gets the effectively. I'm not going to call it a bye week because it's not no get no college football game is a bye week any given Saturday, but gets the easiest ga- easiest matchup of the other three teams. And then possibly you see Georgia-Michigan, which is a game that everybody's been wanting for a couple of years now. Or you get to see Georgia-Oregon, which is a rematch of the very first game that Bo Nix played as a uh, starter at Oregon. No matter where you shake, how you shake it, how you look at it, from a subjective perspective, from a storyline perspective, 1-2-3-4, Georgia-Michigan, Oregon-Florida State is the correct way to do it. I, I think you're... I think you're forgetting about 2014 Bama with one loss was also ahead of Florida State. So there were many spots that they could have put oh, Florida yeah. State. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I, I thought Bama was undefeated that year. Were they not? No, they lost to Ole Miss. Ah, that's right. I think, I think Ole Miss might have had Chad their... Chad Kelly Ole Miss team? I think so. He might, nice. They might have had their wins vacate. No, I think that was Bo Wallace. Oh, it's a Bo Wallace I think maybe, maybe vacated okay. wins, but it was kind of that era. Classic for... SEC football right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Random, random quarterbacks yeah. and vacated wins. Yeah. Shout out to the 2014 SEC West, maybe the greatest division in football history. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the, the 2014 committee had a lot of guts. Probably my favorite committee ever, it, just based on the rankings. I know there's a controversy with TCU, but I love that committee. That put, first committee was wild. Put Florida yeah. State at three because they're not very good. I like that. Honestly, Florida State probably shouldn't even be in the playoff. They should have put Ohio State at three, and they should have put TCU at four. But still, best best committee probably we've seen. The 2023 committee has zero guts. They've done nothing. All they do is look at records. I mean, a first grader can do that, right? Just look at the loss column and rank the teams according to the loss column. Just randomly select which teams within those brackets. It, it's just... It, I really do not like this committee. So where do you think the last four is going to be? They will put Florida State at three because they're undefeated. They will do that. This this is a cop out committee. I, I'm I, sorry, you you I, need I, to hear this. I think there's an honest chance that that Oregon jumps Florida State this week. Actually, this week, and if not, keep in mind that Oregon will have a top five opponent next week, uh, undefeated Washington, who we would project to be sit at number three right now. Again, the committee rankings come out tomorrow night, uh, so a lot of this will be answered. But I think there's an honest chance that uh, we end up with with Oregon jumping. Um, we had another commercial break schedule, but we're running way behind. So, Griffin, you can go ahead and just, and just erase that last commercial break. I want to jump into men's basketball th- with our last 10 minutes here. Uh, men's basketball, uh, solid start of the season. They, they start out 4-0, and then they lost their last two games in the Emerald Coast Classic. Uh, lost to Santa Clara, 88-82, and then lost to Alabama, 99-91. So, two uh, losses there, six points and eight points to the margins. This was played in Florida. Uh, they're back home this week versus Michigan in a, in a really big game. It's going to be a lot of fun. Throwback game, throwback <laughs> unis, a new logo, uh, free T-shirt giveaway for those of you who come. Also, $2 hot dogs. So that's pretty cool. Um, but the the, f- the piece I want to start with is uh, the, the, the injury news, which is really unfortunate. 
Uh, two big men down for the count. Uh, Nate Biddle will be reevaluated in eight weeks, so at least out eight weeks. And Folly Dante, the what we probably would consider the best player on this team, uh, will be reevaluated in four weeks. So again, keyword they're reevaluated. We don't know if they will come back after eight and four weeks, respectively, but they will be reevaluated after eight and four weeks, respectively. Eight for Biddle, four for Dante. Um, but I, I don't know if there's any other way to cut it. This is really tough news for this team. Um, a team that struggled with injury all last year. Um, this is really unfortunate. Not only because those are two of the best players in this team, but because that means they have almost zero front court depth. And I just went through the roster. Um, their backup center, Moji Awara, he's a solid piece, but he'll be the only center on the roster who's active. They now have three forwards on the roster left. Kwame Evans Jr., who's playing. Mookie Cook, who is out until at least December. And we would assume that I think he will start ramping up in December. So there's a chance we don't see him until January. And then forward James Cooper, a junior with 27 total minutes played in his career. Um, so essentially with Biddle, Cook, Dante out, their front court is Kwame Evans Jr., the freshman, and Modi Awara. Um, to say that we're going to get a guard-heavy lineup would be an understatement. Um, the last two games, they've brought Diawara off the bench, and they've started Evans at the five, essentially, despite the fact that he's a, he's a four. Uh, he, he does stand at 6'9". Um, Griffin, I, there's no other way to cut it. It's really tough injury news, um, and the, the front court depth is absolutely shattered. Uh, I guess the best way to ask this question is how devastating is this for this team? I mean, Oregon has struggled with injuries in basketball really the last couple years. I think last year was really bad as well. Yeah. Oregon just has been very unfortunate with these injuries. And for a guard-heavy team, they're going to have to get a lot better at three-point shooting. They were only 35% against Alabama. They gave up 99 points in that game. Also, they need to get better on mm. defense. They gave up 88, I believe, or was it 91? 88 it was, it, to it was Santa Clara. 88 to Santa Clara. So defense really has to improve. It's very difficult to play great, solid <laughs> defense with a guard-heavy squad. And if the defense can't improve, they're going to have to outscore s some of these teams. And Honestly, I think the free throw shooting has gotten a lot better. They were 80% against Alabama earlier in the season. They had some some dud games, some really down performances when it came to free throws. Free throws getting a lot better. Three-point shooting and overall field goal shooting needs to be better as well. They're just they're going to have to outscore teams and Michigan, they're definitely a vulnerable team, but they're a, but they're still solid competition. I think they've lost maybe one or two games thus far. Uh, they're four and three on the year. Started four and out three. three and zero, oh, and then they're one and three in their last four. So they're a little bit of a skid right now. Yeah, a little bit of a skid, but still a still a solid yep. team, still a talented team. And Oregon is not going to just be able to cakewalk over them. This is a this is going to be a very difficult game if Oregon is not able to shoot the ball well. Yeah, it's just it's tough. It's a tough break. Um, Michigan. We'll talk a little bit about them in just a second, briefly. Um, I think one of the, the sole benefits is one, they're in the midst of a non-conference schedule. That's not exactly uh, not super elite. And the Pac-12 has currently one team in the top 25. That's Arizona, the number two ranked team in the nation right now. If you look at the Pac-12 standings, Arizona, the only undefeated team. Oregon's 4-2 and two record puts them in a three-way tie for fourth uh, in the Pac-12. Again, all non-conference late. We're still in the season. But, I mean, there's just no way else to cut it. It's a really tough break for this team. No, it is 100% it's a tough break, but there this is still a very good team even with like we talk about front court depth absolutely shattered. That's a problem. Defense hard to play when you don't really have a, tr a full true experienced center. That being said, Alabama is averaging 97 points a game. This is not like they're playing against oh, we're 
dropping they're way higher than their averages are supposed to be yeah granted i did not have santa clara scoring 80 points on both the men's and women's team in consecutive <laughs> weeks on my bingo card for 2023 but you know it is what it is yeah we're ice and interesting statistics from the alabama game well very strange game statistically 91 points scored by the ducks there only 21 coming off of three-point shooting yeah low total yeah 12 off of free throw very interesting numbers when you look at that uh, shot graph, the shot location graph as well. But what's really concerning to me when you look at this team, it's six points and eight points are the margin. Those are very close games. Okay, so where can you find that difference? Well, in Santa, in the Santa Clara game, they had twenty three fouls. In Alabama, they had twenty four. Yeah, those are ridiculous numbers. Those are numbers that I should never be seeing. Yeah, as a fan, those are numbers that you never want to see on any team. So to me, when I look at that. If you can get those fouls down to 15, 16, 17 a game on average, that could be the difference between both of those games. And you look at, yes, and Folly Dante being out is awful. Nate Biddle being out is awful. They can still win games. They are scoring at an absolutely alarming rate for any team that has to play them. While that guard-heavy um, that guard heavy lineup is going to hurt their defense, and they do need to step up that defense in that front court area, their offense has been stellar. I really don't have any complaints about their offense. They do need to shoot. I think they need to shoot the three a little bit more effectively. But frankly, I think that their offense has been pretty solid. So to me, when I'm looking at this, cut that fouls down, and those though that foul number could be the difference between winning and losing these games. Yeah, their their point totals: 82, 75, 92, 67, 82, 91. So they, they've been putting up points. To to be clear about what's going on. Um, I do think the and that's with with uh, Dante only playing one game, and I think <laughs> that going into the season we've kind of projected him to be the best player. Um, we just have four point uh, four minutes left. Excuse me. A brief note on those two games: their starting lineup: uh, Bartholomew, Evans, Zarzuela, Tracy Kuznar. That was the same starting lineup over the last two games. Again, both games they lost, but they're going to be going against Michigan, uh, four and three on the year. Uh, started out uh, 3-0, to be fair. It wins against UNC Asheville, Youngstown State, and jo- St. John's. Uh, then the last four games, a little bit of a skid, uh, including a loss at Long Beach State. Uh, they will be coming to Eugene. Uh, the only note I would have is right now, on average, because of the limited sample size, uh, Biddle and Dante are the two highest-scoring players on the team and as far as points per game. Um, right now, the next highest uh, for Oregon is in the 11s. Um, Michigan has two players who are 17 or more point-of-game scores, which is always a little concerning just as far as prolific single-game scores. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a really fun game. Um, we have three minutes left. I'll, I'll try to leave in a positive note. Um, hopefully, you guys have positive answers. But, Griffin, do you still think this team can, I would say, survive the non-conference slate, given that it's not super strict? Oh, yes, of course. I think if this team is able to gain some chemistry with this limited lineup, I do think they are able to get out of the non-conference slate, maybe with one or two more losses. And in the Pac-12, obviously, this ain't women's basketball. The Pac-12 is just not super strong in men's basketball. Still very good, but this is not the Big Ten, Big 12, you know, ACC typically in in men's basketball. This, yeah, is, this, is, the, just, this is the Pac-12. It's just not a big, a good basketball conference. It's just not. I mean, that's, a, that's just the fact of the matter. Oregon should be able to get some streaks going. If they're able to get some of these players back, then I think Oregon definitely becomes a tournament team contender. Right now, I'd probably put Oregon on the outside looking in, but... you got to think they're going to get better as, as the year goes Yes, on. they are going to get better. And with this schedule that they have, they're definitely able to. Yeah, I definitely think they're going to get better. I mean, real quick, Evan, do you think that they're going to be able to survive the non-conference slate? I mean, if they're this good, 
without any major for, uh, front court players, just think of how good they're going to be when they get back and we get into conference schedule. I think realistically, any any t if they lose four or less games out of this non-conference, I think we can officially say that they survived, and I think that's the look. Four, four losses or less, you're absolutely clear you're going to get those people back and you're going to have a good time in the conference slate. Yeah, silver lining. Other players get way more minutes. Thanks for listening here on Quacksmack. Make sure you tune in tomorrow at 6 p.m. Uh, for another edition of Quacksmack. Stick around for a DJ here in about 30 seconds here on KWV 88.1 FM. Listen to Quacksmack on KWVA. If you miss any portion of the show or just want to listen again, you can find